A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. Well, Rob, how are you today, please? Today, Russell, I am feeling critical. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. Like a, a chief art critic. Ooh. That's what I'm feeling. Um, I'm also feeling slightly thirsty and... Uh, I don't mean for water. I mean for knowledge attention. and for art. Yeah, I'm always thirsty for attention. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm also slightly thirsty for knowledge. And today's guest has taught me a lot and I adore her. And I first met her properly. I mean, I think we probably had met or sat at least at dinners in London over the years. But we properly connected when um, I opened the gallery here in Margate in 2019. And they were working, our guest was working on a book called Art London, which came out that very year. Mm. And um, I was really impressed by the book. I thought it was a beautifully designed and just really, uh, it was very usable book and sort of very concise, but at the same time, very full and rich with detail. And that was my first kind of, I mean, aside from having read articles, because obviously today's guest is a regular contributor to the Guardian's art pages, does really full length, stunning portraits in words of different artists and different um, topics in the art world. And is also the chief art critic now of the British daily newspaper, The Eye, which we all know and love, and um, has written for all kinds of magazines like Freeze, and Art Monthly, Art Review, Apollo, like you name it, this writer has contributed and uh, made an impact. But more recently, they have written books on Frida Kahlo, who everyone listening to this podcast will know is my all-time hero. And we were supposed to interview our guest around... around Oh. <laughs> I would have well that would have been a dream but um but yeah we were meant to talk to today's guest around that book and then also you love Caroline Walker a lot mm. and introduce Caroline to the podcast mm. we interviewed them around that time this guest has also contributed to Caroline's uh, Janet um, yeah Janet book exactly there's yeah. so many but more recently there's a few other books which we're going to be talking about one focuses on motherhood and sort of prioritizing and caring for parents within the art world and how we can sort of really discuss that more because it's been something that's been overlooked and um, quite terrifyingly in a way and shockingly people have been persecuted for being parents really in the art world so I'm looking forward to talking about that and there's also a new book which we will discover and I know you're going to love that new book Russell Tovey yes, yes, um, yes. so we would like to finally welcome to Talk Art Hetty Tudor hi Hetty hello wow what an introduction how are you I'm very well I'm quite 
tired. I've just been on a three-week speaking tour of Europe talking about art and motherhood, and it was wonderful. And I travelled by train, but I'm a bit tired now. You're such a rock star. You're doing a rock tour around the world. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, and yes, and, a, and I guess I'm a mum star. You can't be a mum star, can you? Actually, that's one of the things I'm I'm trying to fight against because obviously mums are considered as the, anti, the antithesis to cool, and we've got to do something about that, I think. To me, I think mums, I think they are definitive of what is cool we both me and rob both love our mums our mums are our biggest champions for me discovering more about how being a mum affects your ability to progress within the art world is is really upsetting and obviously something that i feel uh, shameful for not knowing more about because obviously i'm not a mum and it, the whole you know your manifesto which i've been following is that it's so easy to ignore it if it doesn't affect you but it affects other people so much yeah it's very easy to ignore an absence if you can't see it and you're not feeling it you know it, you you don't realize that it's happening but um i mean it, it goes right from real prejudices around the mother as a cultural figure so we tend to think of the mother as a kind of comic cultural figure somebody that's i mean i know you you're both wonderful sons and you both adore your mothers but in in broader kind of cultural terms, when we think about going to see some stand up comedy, you know the comedians quite often making jokes about their mum being overbearing or it's being the mother in law, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, but also the the mother themselves as well as being you know caring too much, worrying about things, interfering, nagging, having like weird quirks, um, and this idea that the mother's somebody that can make a serious co- cultural contribution is something that's quite alien and there's not really a paradigm of the artist's mother for people to point to and go, yeah, that's what I am, you know. And of course, we're now starting to see people like Alice Neal getting more celebrated and we can go, yeah, Alice Neal, she's an artist's mother and, um, you know, that's that's what I'm doing too. But it's, it's, not, it's not as a paradigm socially, it's not something that's very present. And there's been this long-held idea that making art about motherhood or the domestic sphere was kind of lesser art. It was a kind of thing that women did, that mummies did, so it wasn't great. And that's something also that we really need to combat as well. The thing with Alice Neal, which I always remember, is that she herself sort of said that being a mother was hard. She wasn't like a champion for other mother artists. She was basically saying, don't do it. And I think I've watched documentaries and her kids always seem slightly broken by their experience of having an, a mother as an artist and that's and that was of the time I guess and what she felt she had to do which again is the problem of it all. Yeah I mean it's quite interesting so I've done a very uh, lengthy study so I've interviewed about just over well initially just over 50 artist mothers about their experiences so they were people from ages ranging from pregnancy right up to grandmotherhood and of, of all kinds of different art practice. So some of them were quite well established with commercial galleries. Others were, I guess, much less present in the kind of art world that we we spend our time in. And what very often kind of comes to light is that actually the people that are being exclusionary in their behaviour that aren't being good allies are quite often other women and quite often also older mothers. And there is, I think, this idea that you've been through something difficult yourself. So why shouldn't other people, you know, well, I, I, I coped with it. I dealt with all of that, so why shouldn't you? It's really interesting how this pattern of um, prejudicial behaviour becomes replicated, even even amongst women. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that goes through a lot of careers in the creative industry. I know that a friend of mine's a producer, and there's some other directors who are 
uh, female directors and young she's like saying oh could you want to support younger upcoming female directors to be kind of an ambassador and a role model for them and they're like no it is this mentality that yeah I fought hard for this so why do I need now need to give you a clear path it's like an ingrained experience that that is like a trauma that they feel resentful in some ways to other people not get getting an easy parenthesis route in yeah I mean, and there's also this difficult thing in obviously that as feminists we try and push back against quite hard but growing up we're really often taught as um, girls that we're in competition with one another there's not space for a great number of us to thrive and so actually you know, we're set at one another's throats, you know, to be critical of the way that other people dress or what they look like or their weight or being outspoken in public or, you know, all their all their parenting skills. So, you know, we really are taught in a way to take other women down. And so getting over that actually can be a thing in itself, I think, too. And this is the book, How Not to Exclude Artist Mothers and Other Parents. And th- th- there's a quote that you can't have both motherhood and a successful career. So how did this come together for you? What was the first experience when you thought, I need to write about this? Yeah, so in a way, it's that funny thing where, I I mean, again, I I went through being a parent and for quite a long time, a single parent in the art world and was very aware of the fact that my male colleagues were advancing beyond me and that they were being taken much more seriously, but they were also going to all of the kind of art world, you know, dinners and the biennials and doing all of the travel that now comes with being part of the art world and I I very much wasn't and I was kind of sliding backwards at that time but I guess I just kind of thought that was the way things were and so in a way it's been seeing members of the young generation being more public about their status as parents that's emboldened me to to an extent and has um, I think provoked me to examine the structures that I endured and then when all of those great studies started to come out a few years ago looking at gender balance in the art world so there's um obviously charlotte burns and julia halperin's burns halperin report which i think the first one came out in 2018 and there have been the freelance foundation reports that have been coming out for about seven or eight years now um and i i did a lot of reporting on those and obviously was looking at those with great interest and it became really evident that the moment at which the fortunes of male and female artists or should we say male female non-binary artists parted company was really at the point of getting gallery representation. So there were more female and non-binary students of art at GCSE, at A-level, at BA level, at postgraduate level. When you get to early career awards like the New Contemporaries, there was rough gender parity. So it wasn't, there was an issue of quality, God forbid. But when it came to uh, representation by commercial galleries, there was this huge shift suddenly and about 68% of the artists represented by commercial galleries in London certainly are are male and I was really interested as to what was happening between shall we say MA PhD level studies and that moment of getting commercial representation which if you're lucky happens when you're in your let's say your your mid-30s and of course there are other things that quite often happen in people's lives when they're in their mid-30s and that that can include becoming a parent Um, So it occurred to me that perhaps parenthood was a factor in this. So I was commissioned by Kate McMillan, who was the author of some of the Freelance Foundation reports. She commissioned me to write an essay looking at the impact of motherhood on artists' careers. I started working on it right as the pandemic hit in March 2020. And 
I put an open call out on Instagram, just wondering whether anybody would be interested in talking about this. And I'm kind of, I mean, I'm quite lazy. I was probably just going to write an essay and interview about six people. And I just got this, I got this unbelievable response back. So it was being shared all over the place. The call out kind of went viral and I was getting a lot of emotional outpourings coming back to me. And I ended up interviewing everybody who wished to be interviewed. So that was just over 50 people. And so, I've, I mean, I think because also in a way the pandemic made this possible because I was in lockdown and so I wasn't out there reviewing stuff. Uh, I had a self-employment support grant. So, I, you know, my work wasn't being funded by anyone, but it was being funded by, you know, my self-employment support grants that made it possible. So that initially turned into an essay called Full, Messy and Beautiful. And I have to say it was a very, very emotional experience doing all of the interviews. People were very upset. They'd been through extremely difficult situations. So they'd experienced all of the difficulties that any experience of parenting comes with, which can include things like domestic abuse or having children that require extra care or have being in c- controlling relationships or having very challenging socioeconomic circumstances or mental health wobbles, physical health issues, all of that. And then on top of that, you've got the art world, which is basically shuts down on you. And I was talking to plenty of people who, as soon as they became publicly pregnant, their long-standing relationships with curators was being shut off. The curators stopped contacting them. They assumed that they were no longer available and able to participate. They were lo- people were losing commissions. So, for example, portrait commissions they'd, they'd received. And they said they were pregnant. That was removed from them. Performances in international festivals uh, were, were cancelled. And then once you've taken time out of the art world particularly if you know if you've got a few children and you need to do do need to take some time off to look after them there are very very few mechanisms for coming back into it so you think about all of the awards and the residencies that are provided for um, emerging artists and have age limits on them those are just not available if you're coming back into the art world in your shall we say 40s or 50s and obviously, middle-aged women are not seen as a particularly hot proposition within the art world. And so I think a lot of people are finding themselves then coming out of their active caregiving days and totally stuck, completely unable to attract the interest of a gallerist, curators, of commissioning bodies, of residencies, of awards. I think you said that uh, the art world has no HR department. Yeah. <laughs> which is... Uh... You know, when you're talking about this, feels like that is what is missing. You can go to someone and go, hang on a minute, this isn't right. So so in 2022, you co-founded um, the Art Working Parents Alliance, or AWP, which is a nationwide network. Uh, your manifesto is, our hope is that in making our status as parents visible, we can support one another and work towards a more inclusive art world. So that's only last year. But have you felt changes, small or big, within the art world since you've started this alliance? Yeah, there have been some really interesting changes. So one of the things that I talk about, so there was another, there was like a full-on manifesto called How Not to Exclude Artist Parents that I worked on collaboratively with a group of artists in 2021. And one of the things that we point out in that manifesto is that the convention of having all events in the art world between six and eight in the evening is completely inaccessible to anyone who's looking after small children. So it coincides with, you know, what people refer to as the arsenic hour, which is 
when everybody's really ratty and you've got Lego all over the floor and you've got to do tea and bath time and bedtime and you know the and that's, hour. yeah that. it's wonderful <laughs> I mean it, it, it has some slightly dark possibilities <laughs> yeah, yeah, into yeah. It as a term. and what's been really interesting is I've noticed since then that quite a few galleries have started doing openings for example on Saturday mornings like they're doing brunch openings and they're the other thing that's happened that I do talk about in the book a little bit is um, that people have started to hold baby-friendly events. And I make a distinction between a baby-friendly event and, and a family-friendly event. So a baby-friendly event is, I mean, in fact, we have them in the, in the film world. People take their, you know, people taking their kids to early morning screenings oh, yeah, um, course, when they're yeah. babes in arms. But we, we've never had that in the art world. No. And this is, so these are, so a baby friendly event is an event that's really addressing the needs of the parent, but they're welcome to bring the baby with them. Whereas a family friendly event is addressing the needs of the child and the parents are accompanying the child into it. So a family friendly events, the kind of stuff that we're used to seeing in the big museums where kids are making art or costumes and interacting with the work and the parents are there in a supporting capacity. But a baby-friendly event is something like a talk or a guided tour or a special event that's maybe held at like half 10 or 11 in the morning. And you can bring your baby with you. And it's explicitly anticipated that there'll be some breastfeeding and there'll be some crying and there'll be some people moving around and probably some like babies crawling up onto the stage or toddlers and like a certain amount of interruption and chaos. And I think what's really interesting is that until really like I'd say literally like 18 months ago the idea that this might be something that people were attracted with just didn't occur to most arts organizations so during the um the tour that I've just done in Europe I gave it as a provocation to quite a few of the institutions that I spoke at and I went to the Moderna Musée, which I'm sure you've both visited which is a fabulous very progressive modern art gallery in Stockholm and they had their first ever baby friendly event and it was completely wild and we had like 12 very very small children in an audience of 75 adults and there were stage invasions there were toddlers crawling all over us <laughs> I mean it was quite nuts but also great and it's really interesting to bring that energy into a museum mm. as well I was just going to pick up so I realized that Russell asked me a kind of two-point question and I responded to the second point in it but I just wanted to clarify something really briefly because you mentioned AWP, the Artworking Parents Alliance. And actually, I should say that the Artworking Parents Alliance is for art workers rather than artists. It can also be for artists who are art workers. But it really came about because um, in the years that I've been working on art and motherhood, on artist parents, I've had so much communication from people working in other areas in the art world. They might be academics, uh, they could be gallerists, they could be people working in communications or art fairs who have found things extremely difficult and there's been a huge lack of empathy towards their needs as parents and this can even be for example people experiencing miscarriages at art fairs and not being allowed to leave their station or you know take time off there's this expectation that everybody will keep working out of hours or at weekends or travel the whole time there are people who agree maternity leave at a commercial gallery never having had a child before and not realizing actually that after six weeks they're not going to be ready to go back to work they're going to be still required for full-time care there are academics who take part-time contracts because they're caregivers and who essentially end up finding their careers in stasis and they're not given any 
support to progress through the organisation. So there were all kinds of really bad practices going on. And Artworking Parents really is a network that we established, first of all, so that people could share their experiences to feel they weren't the only people out there. Because in in a way, there's been this institutional silence around people's status as mothers and parents. Again, part of that's this whole thing that we have in the art world where it's special in the art world. So you're not meant to complain about, for example, unpaid work being expected of you or you know, lots and lots of unpaid overtime happening or the fact that we have to do these quite extreme, extreme long days, weekend work, vast amounts of travel and all this kind of thing. So we're, we're lucky to be in the art world. So we should put up with the bad pay and the bad treatment and the, the, the naughty habits. So on the one hand, it's a network where people can share experiences and support one another. But we're also campaigning for change within the art world. So Joe and I are currently talking to Whitechapel Gallery about holding a symposium in July at which we will work with HR people uh, <laughs> and HR department for the art world and um, employment lawyers, trade union representatives. And we're going to, in that, start to put together some, like a toolkit for negotiating um, and a set of best, you know, code of best practice in a number of these fields. We hope anyway, that's the aim at this point. Amazing. I think I've noticed as well lots of baby nappy changing facilities popping up. I've always seen that sign around uh, galleries, which is something I hadn't really picked up on before, obviously because I don't have a baby to change their nappy. But I feel like there's th- them incremental changes are sort of being considered now as well. And um, one of the things I also talk about a lot in the book is um, how to make residencies family friendly and the different ways that you can do that. And I've actually also just been over in Switzerland doing some consultancy work for their Arts Council, Pro Helvetia, about making their residency programme family friendly in Switzerland. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that I've been more, I've had more engagement with the subject in continental Europe than I have in the UK. And we can ask some questions about why that may, might be. I don't know. But um, but yes, yeah, so, so there is definitely engagement and there have been some some changes. And I'm also, I should say, I'm not here. I, I don't mean to say this to plug myself, but I am currently working on a big Hayward touring exhibition on art and motherhood and an exhibition on it. So, so there's definitely an appetite, I would say, from a programming perspective to start engaging with this subject now. Well, you've well. just got a grant for that, right? This is something that you, you would... For the book for it, you were struggling to get publishing support and you've just received a grant. I saw that on your website. So congratulations. But also it's kind of sad that a writer like yourself is still struggling to get publishing support. Yeah, well, thank you. But um, yes, yeah, so I mean, I, the, the Society of Authors grant that I got, I think, was the first proper bit of support for the book that I got. And I saw that we still don't have a publisher fully in hand for it, but it's definitely going to happen because Hayward have committed. So the the show's opening at Arnolfini in Bristol in 2024, uh, February 2024. And hopefully the book will follow either, I think I would hope shortly thereafter. Yeah. I, I, I also just feel like it's win-win for everybody. The more people that get included in the conversation of art, in public art spaces in particularly, in, in even commercial galleries, private galleries, all of these things, surely it's just, it's better for everybody because it, the conversation's bigger. And and if you think of museums, I mean, if they're getting Arts Council funding or all of these things, they have to like, you know, write up reports about how many people have come through them, what they're doing to engage communities. The community is those children. <laughs> you know, it, it is those babies. They are the future of our country, of, of our countries, plural, you know, and and the future artists as well. I mean, it's just, 
it, it, I just, I, I'm so happy this book happened. The minute I saw it, I remember I was in Curve Coffee Shop in Margate and I saw Hannah Lees, the artist, and we were both at the same time had heard you were writing this book and we were both so thrilled about it and and I, I feel like it's been a relief for a lot of people who, who are currently you know have toddlers have young babies who are artists who are faced with that fear even in our generation right now you know and I, I just think it's so brilliant it also weirdly because of the design of your book I think the cover is so well designed the actual like color of it the whole I, I often find that with the books you do like I I think they're, they're quite inviting and you almost want to pick them up if you know what I mean. That is quite funny because the, the um, How Not to Exclude Artist Mothers is actually part of a series called Hot Topics in Contemporary Art. Yes. So they've got a fairly set format. And so all they do is they offer you the colours. So I was kind of, and this, it was the only, should we say, like feminist text in that series. So I was like, oh, don't make it pink for God's sake. And I was like, actually, no, make it pink. Make it red <laughs> and pink. Make it look like a fanny. Come on. Um, <laughs> uh, so I... <laughs> Um, Rob loves those yeah. books. Books that look like fannies. <laughs> Rob's like, give it to me. I now. Do. You do, and I love. Well, you know that I love women artists as well, and non-binary artists and trans yeah. artists. Like that's yeah. always been a big passion of mine in my own collection. But um, I just am thrilled because I just think it's about time. But the other thing I've been loving, which I know you've just mentioned, you're curating this exhibition. But I'm loving your Instagram feed lately, where, where you're introducing us to different paintings from history, things you might have seen on your travels recently, um, relating to motherhood, parenthood. Um, there's some amazing examples. And even recently, Chantal Joff um, painted Antonia Showering with Katie Hessel, actually, the other great young uh, writer and almost like a, like an art critic from great women artists, but they're these beautiful paintings of Antonia just as she's um, you know fully pregnant. And I I'm loving all of this being included in art being made now. But also when you look back, how it's always been there. But I feel like I never saw those works before. I mean, you say it's always been there. To be honest, it's so I quite often set myself this task of going through an entire collection, looking through the lens of how is motherhood represented here, and it's not that present. I must admit. Mm, mm. Um, so I think there were very, very few paintings, for example, of pregnant women until quite recently. And there was a bit of a kind of taboo around it, I think. So and so we have symbolic mothers. We have mothers turning up as, so you've got the Roman figure of Charity who breastfed her father. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, quite often there are like genre paintings of women breastfeeding where it's basically an excuse to have their boobs hanging out. I mean, like Ru every Rubens painting, it's like, Oh my God, somebody's attacking our town. My boobs have fallen out because I was breastfeeding my child. And <laughs> oh my so there are just God. kind of like tits flying everywhere. You know, so there's, you know, like as with the kind of the, the Madonna and child, it's quite often like an excuse to, to ogle someone. And then you obviously get kind of like really political engagements with motherhood, particularly around quite nationalistic paintings that are happening in the early 20th century. And indeed, before that, there were a lot of responses to the idea of the new woman, so the liberated woman, and the fact that she needed to instead look to her destiny as as a breeder and a, and a homebody. So it's it's quite interesting. There are very few kind of just straight up celebrations or engagements with the reality of motherhood until, you know, really until I mean, actually, Frida was the first one. Your your beloved Frida, Rob, she painted that amazing picture of herself uh, experiencing a miscarriage. And then also painted herself being born, which I think is the first like full-on painting of somebody giving birth in that way. Wow. Yeah. yeah. My birth. Yeah, it's my favourite painting. Yeah. God, that's so interesting. 
How, how did Frida Kahlo come into your life then? If we think about the other book you, you've written, um, I think it was out in 2020. What was it that drove you to write about Frida? I mean, she's an absolutely fascinating character, but I think, I, in fact, it really started when I did a piece about that amazing show that was the VNA that I'm sure you both saw where they yes. had a lot of a lot of the stuff that was kind of found quite recently within the closed off rooms in the blue house in Mexico City so mm. there was a section of the a very large section of the house that was closed off um, for I think it's 50 years after Diego Rivera's death and they started to go through it and it was a lot of personal stuff well, so but that was sorry it. that was in the wheel or something that you weren't allowed to enter it for 50 years or yes I think it was I think there were two rooms there was a bathroom and another room and oh my god I didn't know that yeah. So that's where that's where all of this other stuff started to come from. So there were her oh, medical wow. records and her makeup and her clothes. And why? Her why were they? Prosthetics. Why? Why did they want to do that? Sorry to interrupt. I'm just like, what the? What is this? Why did they want to shut off everything? Why did they want to let the rest, rest people around the rest of the house potentially, but not into these rooms? And have I, well, you have stuff been discovered that's really like shocking? I mean, it's just it's. Um, hmm. I'm not sure I can be put on the spot in a very adequate way on this, but from memory. <laughs> Basically, Diego Rivera was, he had cancer and he died not too long after Frida. At this point, Frida wasn't, you know, she wasn't this kind of like iconic figure that we have now. She'd had some modest success in her lifetime. She'd had a, a good show in New York. She'd had a fairly so-so show in 1939 in Paris. She had, right before she died, she was celebrated in Mexico City. But he, but Diego Rivera ended up leaving all of her paintings I mean, it's, I think it's in the National Bank of Mexico, something really strange. And the house was more of a kind of curiosity, a public curiosity for a long time. It wasn't particularly strictly policed. And so I think a lot of stuff got pilfered <laughs> when people used to visit it. And it was only really kind of in the late 80s and 90s that she started to be rediscovered and reappraised. So her work was quite invisible before that point. I think the the rooms that were shut off contained personal stuff. And I think the idea was that it was, it could be accessed after everybody that might be involved in it had died. That's quite often the way these things go. And a lot, but a lot of it was really small things like, you know, medicines and lipsticks and kind of personal effects and personal letters and photographs. Actually, they're amazing photographs. So anyway, so in that show that they had at the VNA, which came out of that trove, um, there were her medical prostheses. And I think what was really striking was that, you know, Frida had become such a pop cultural figure at that point, And she was very rarely, in fact, pretty much never portrayed as um, a woman who'd gone through a amputation as a woman with a, living with disability, as a woman living with quite severe spinal injury, as a woman who used a wheelchair at times. And I was quite interested as to how she was very much picked up and embraced by disabled women as a result of that show and those artifacts becoming public. And I became quite interested in her as a kind of almost a universal symbol because she's in many ways very enigmatic because she's almost a self-created icon. You know, she constructed this persona of Frida Kahlo that was the public face. And so people project onto her very freely. And I think, you know, whether you've been heartbroken or badly treated in love or whether you've suffered grief or whether you've suffered illness you find her an incredibly strong and moving figure and also if you've you know perhaps experienced miscarriage and if you've had and also I had I think ambivalence about having children as well so there are there is a lot of this kind of human side to her that people find extremely uh, compelling 
and I was quite interested in in looking kind of behind the myths and seeing what there was to discover of her. Yeah, for sure. I always remember that early story as well of her having polio um, and how that sort of began these kind of, and then obviously the the bus accident, there were, there were like so many events in her life that somehow all these challenges. And I remember when I first discovered her in the nineties via the pop star Madonna, because Madonna had started talking about her work. And for me, it was this message of that you can survive, that you can, even in the darkest of times in, you know, it doesn't matter what life throws at you, whether it be, you know, your, your physical body, but having disabilities or, or whatever it may be, but like somehow that through art, it kind of gives you a purpose and a drive and a meaning behind all the sadness somehow. And I think I was really, really, as a 13 year old, it just spoke to me um, in the way that like music would also, you know, Tori Amos talking about rape or all of these kind of big issues, but it's, it's yeah, the it women really that made a difference. Me. You know, women, yeah. women, iconic women through history are the ones that myself and Rob, and I think many people have, many gay men have connected to more than mm. male role models you know there's definitely these this the patriarchy we kind of fought against it and the women that have come along and changed the game and, and been outspoken and i know because they're always so persecuted yeah well. they're, like, yeah they're the ones that you're like hundreds of years yeah. it's like yeah and i think we definitely as gay men feel a solidarity with yeah women. we met through tracy emin yeah. which is you know yeah, it's our, true, our, yeah. our our frida carlo in some ways <laughs> she shares certain you know <laughs> qualities definitely so you're an art critic as well. And uh, for people listening, I would love to just get a dummy's guide to what an art critic is and does. And do you decide what you get to critique or do the publishers of uh, the magazines you write for and the publications you write for tell you what to do? Okay, that's a, a multi-point question there. So I'm going to start from the end, Russell. So in terms of what I get to review in the papers, I pitch so I send a list of the shows that I think are maybe compelling to, for example, the eyes readership and the editor then chooses what she is most drawn to. And the Guardian quite often will approach me about things it wants me to review because I'm not, a, I'm so obviously the Guardian has Adrian Searle and um, Jonathan Jones as its two kind of main critics, um, but they'll quite often approach me to do other things. So there is a degree of, with with the papers, there's a degree of choice, but not like open choice. I very much can't just review whatever I want. And I think in making the suggestions to the newspaper, I'm very aware that, for example, the eye might only carry four reviews a month uh, and that our readership is spread around the UK. So it will be the four most important shows of that month and not fully London centric. So those also are lenses that you need to kind of apply to what you're writing about. For th for more for kind of like the art magazines like Freeze and stuff, you have more freedom in terms of you can pitch things that you think are interesting rather than simply like the big banner headline shows and more works at commercial, they're more likely to cover works in commercial galleries. Again, you have to pitch it there. You can't just write something. The only place where I have a certain degree of freedom like that is in my column for Apollo. So I have a monthly column for Apollo where it tends to be less of a kind of rapid response thing. So it's not a review, but it tends to pull out kind of themes that I think are really interesting at the moment. So for example, in the most recent one, I've looked at artists engaging with history and using the artfulness of art uh, to 
take a look at what's usually written out of what we think of as historical accounts. So that's, um, I looked at Mohammed Sami, who I'm sure you've both seen at Camden Arts Centre, which is a really outstanding exhibition. I think one of the best shows in London at the moment. And also an artist called Christopher Kulendron Thomas, who had a show at the ICA and Cave in Berlin. And I think he'll, his work will be showing in Zurich in the summer. And he did a, a film that was, well, a, a film and installation work that was um, looking at like recent historic incidents in Sri Lanka and particularly the perspective of the Tamil people that had been completely erased. And so he'd created various levels of artifice within the work. So there was some deep, there was a deep fake of Kim Kardashian that popped up that was very evidently artificial. But then there were also reconstructions of, for example, um, female combatants training and giving answers in a documentary film that looked quite plausible, but on reflection were probably staged. And I think he was like Mohammed Sami, there's this thing of, you know, how much is uh, constructed in our understanding of history and how much does each generation write history in its own image? And what can the fictional realm, the made up realm of film or uh, poetry or art bring to this world of history which we tend to think of as the hard world of fact but um, you know that actually these other dimensions really add to it ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sorry, so that was quite a long answer to your the first the second part of your question (laughs) the first part of your question in terms of um what art criticism what is art criticism i well i mean i when i talk about this when i i I do lecture a bit about art writing i tend to start with a critical hero of mine not an art critic but a critical hero of mine which is the character anton ego who crops up in the film ratatouille which I'm sure you're both uh, far too far too learned to have seen, but it's a great <laughs> great favourite of mine. It's a Disney Pixar movie. Which I've actually seen it over Christmas a few <laughs> years ago. I loved it. If you're not acquainted with it, it's about a plucky young hero and his best friend who's a rat, and they are the underdogs, and they end up kind of starting a restaurant together in Paris. And the great kind of counterbalance to that is this character, the critic called Anton Ego, who looks a bit like kind of Will Self and is this very kind of skinny, skinny character in a dark jacket that kind of looms over people and casts a long shadow and is very kind of pithy. Uh, and there's this there's this kind of great moment towards the end of the film where, you know, the plucky young hero Linguini has set up his restaurant and everybody's a buzz about it and they'll think it's wonderful. And suddenly this shadow is cast across the restaurant and Anton Ego comes in through the door and he kind of strides purposefully down down the middle of between the tables and 
looms over Linguini and he says, you're awfully small to be the next big thing. And Linguini looks up at him and says, you're awfully thin for someone who likes food. And Antonigo looks down at him and says, I don't like food. I love food. And if I don't love it, I don't swallow it. And so in a way, there's that actually for me is a really great encapsulation of what being a critic is all about, which is that actually you're somebody that really loves art. And, you know, you feel incredibly passionate about it. You engage with it and you, you're, you know, that you really want to meet the artist intellectually to engage with what they're doing aesthetically to really kind of bury yourself in it. But when there's something that's not right, that's not all it should be, that's being overhyped, that's, you know, that you don't want to swallow, that's when you respond to it critically in that way. So obviously being critical isn't just about criticising things, but it is, I mean, it, it can fulfil many functions. When I'm writing for the daily papers, it can simply be a question of my readers have £14 to spend on an exhibition this weekend, which exhibition should I tell them to go and see? And when should I tell them to save their £14? You know, But it can also be that you're engaging with an artist who you think has something really interesting to say, but that perhaps is saying it in such a, a new and experimental way that actually people need a little bit of kind of guidance to bring them into it. And perhaps that you become more like an interpreter on a certain level as well. Tell them how to see. Why well, not tell them how to see? Well, but kind of... <laughs> allow them how to see. You know, once well, someone, help, well, one help them, them, help them how to see. Encourage, yeah, encourage them to look. All right, fine. Yeah. But it's like when I, you know, you look at a painting with someone, they go, I don't get it. And you just go, well, it's these colours because the artist felt like that. And suddenly it opens a little door and someone feels like, oh, okay, they can be critical of it or they can appreciate the story within it. And then it becomes theirs. So that, that, you know, that's, I guess, you're encouraging, a critic is always encouraging someone to discover more. But do you ever feel bad about writing a bad review about someone? And have you ever been in the situation, like recently there was that thing, what was it, Berlin, where that director threw <laughs> dog shit into that critic's yeah. mouth or something over her face and he got arrested and then struck off. But, I mean, obviously, you know, no one's done that to you, I hope. But do you feel like you might enter a room after a bad review and there's a sort of tension if you go to an institution where you've been critical of them? I think quite often, actually, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but you're quite often aware that you're maybe not doing your best work on something. And I think people sometimes do kind of go, yeah, actually, that was that, that's kind of fair enough. I mean, it, quite often more, I think, more often when I respond strongly, it's when somebody's really getting overhyped and you've got a gallery that's really pushing some extremely bland kind of, you know, nice abstract paintings. It's like, this is just not, you know, you, you're, you're overhyping this massively. And I kind of then feel bad because it's almost like the artist is getting caught up in a situation that's not necessarily of their own construction. It's the gallery just massively overheating things and pushing them into a position that actually... They, they, they shouldn't really have been put in in the first place. Like, it's perfectly fine, but it's not like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And, you know, uh, yeah, because, I mean, you often see that. So when you get one painter that's doing something exciting, all the galleries want the same thing. So they get somebody that's kind of like almost identical. Oh, yeah, she's doing like big, colourful, abstract paintings. You see it at art yeah. fairs, don't you, every year? Yeah. It's like the one who's kind of trailblazed and then every other gallery has this, yeah, you're right, identical. It's of. the same in music. I've never understood it because I'm always like, surely in the end, 
If you think in as a parallel in music, like there's Amy Winehouse, say, we don't then need 25 Amy Winehouses. Amy Winehouse was Amy Winehouse because she was so singular and so doing her own thing. What we need is to find people who are doing their own thing. And I just think people forget that sometimes. It's the same it's with like, TV shows. They make a TV show and yes, you get it turned so like down that. and nobody's into it. We don't get it. No one to get it. It comes out as a hit and everyone's like, well, we want a show like that. Can you make I know, a show? but it's, it's just like, so silly. It's yeah. so like silly. Nobody knows anyway, what they're doing, really. So Hattie, <laughs> was, was was your passion for art and your love for art the thing that led you to writing? Or did you always want to be a writer, like prior to working out what you would write about, if that makes sense? Like when you were growing up, were you someone that like loved writing? Yes, I definitely loved writing. Um, and I guess I used to like write stories of my friends and kind of you do illustrated stories and that kind of stuff and but I, funnily enough when I was at Glasgow I was quite involved in the performance side of things so there was some I guess more of what you call kind of traditional theatre but there was a lot also an awful lot of what in those days was called stuff like physical theatre but nowadays you would put under the the umbrella of performance art I think it's it's the kind of stuff that's really moved more into the museum and institutional sphere so funnily enough I kind of ended up writing about art through that so I was performing and then I ended up um directing some stuff and I directed a little um uh, festival in Glasgow called Terra Nova um, which is a small, it was, it was a kind of nomadic international festival and I did the, the Glasgow iteration of it. Um, and I was in Glasgow really at a time when the art scene was absolutely flourishing. So there was, you know, there was kind of tramway and the arches and the CCA were all very active. And we had amazing people like Annie Sprinkle coming over and doing performances and Michael Clark doing dance pieces and um, and Charles Escher, who's now at in, I think he's in Eindhoven. He, he's a really significant curator, but he was curating at tramway. So I think Douglas Gordon's 24 Hour Psycho was there, but there were also lots of great, amazing performance works. Um, so I was really lucky to be there when there was a I mean, you don't realise that it's special at the time because it's just what you're living with. But I was really lucky. I was there when there was an incredible scene. And so I think it was coming out of that. I ended up writing about art from that. So I don't think I'd necessarily see myself going into this area of writing. I think if you'd asked me kind of at the age of 13 if I was going to write, I probably would have assumed I would have been doing fiction or something or, or maybe drama. The idea that I'd be writing about art in this way is... Yeah, it was not foreseen. But I think one thing that's, I mean, this is also the reason that it's a really, really compelling thing to do. And this is what keeps you guys in it as well, is that art is a space where you're really engaging with another consciousness. You're engaging with somebody else's thoughts. You're trying to get inside their heads and their motivation. And at the same time, you're also being incredibly stimulated aesthetically as well in other ways. And for me, actually, the thing, you know, when I'm looking for work that I really want to write about, what excites me is when I have got absolutely no idea how I'm going to write about it. I've got, I don't have a route into it. I don't know how I'm going to engage with it. And that's when you know that you're seeing something that's really exciting and new and doing something that's very fresh that you, you know, yeah. Have you had that recently? Did you, did you, you did a review of Jenkin recently. I interviewed Jenkins. Yeah. I was so excited the first time I saw Jenkins works. I saw it. The first time I saw it was in Kiss My Genders and I've been a, a huge fan and it was um, in a funny kind of way. What's interesting with that is that I definitely went into that going, I have absolutely no idea how to get a hand on this. Part of that I think was also, it's not simply the art, which I, which I'm, I love, as I say, I'm a great fan, but there was also this consciousness that I felt like I was looking into 
a subculture that I was very much not a part of, whether that's a kind of queer club scene or the kind of latex fetishism or the masking fetishes or what on earth was going on with all of that cake, which turned out to be incredibly <laughs> sweet and benign. And it was a friend of his mother's that made these shaped cakes. But there was so much wrongness happening with cake in all of those films. But um, and he was, you know, he's really fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, we love Jenkin. We're actually hoping to interview them, but it hasn't happened yet. But hopefully this season, maybe. Um, so your latest book, amongst all your other incredible publishing highlights, is a new book called Lapidarium, The Secret Lives of Stones. Now, I thought this would a resonate with my mum, which I told you about when you were writing it, because my mum studied geology and my whole childhood was about all of her collection of like fossils, but also stones and crystals and rocks and all these things. And then when I met Russell, his early collection before art when he was a child was crystals and rocks and stones so I knew this book was for Russell Tovey as well totally rocks and minerals was my jam and uh, I said to Hetty before we came online that for my eighth birthday uh, my parents took me to the annual rock and mineral society convention (laughs) that was in a community center in Harold Wood and I was sat there between my parents and everyone in there was about a thousand years old covered in dust (laughs) You're probably uh, very interested to... in that case, in that case. Add one to your collection. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I, I remember loving it as a kid and, and growing crystals with alum and then I would have one of these rock turner things. So you would you'd find pebbles and you put them in this rock thing with certain solutions you'd add in, and it would just like turn and turn. And it had to go in the garage because it was so loud and it was rattling the whole time. And then, you know, you like two months later you'd pull the lid off and you'd see all of these polished stones that you've made. Madness but absolutely just fascinated by it. So this book for me is heaven. Oh, yeah, I remember somebody coming into school with one of those pebble polishers and being so jealous. They're great, though. Can I make a request that if you manage to find a photograph of yourself age eight, can we put it in the, the post to go in this the, uh, podcast? Yes. I have to see that. His all right, my mum, I'll ask my mum. There must be something of them all laid out. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this new book has 60 different stones that have influenced our shared history. And it's very much this idea of how stones are connected to the culture that that we're so aware of, you know, whether it be giant marble sculptures and the stories behind them or, you know, many different different things. Can you speak a bit about how this book came to be? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, so I was, I was telling Russell earlier, I did a talk with Ingrid Swenson, who was formerly at Peer Gallery last night, and she was talking a lot about how artists are, out in front testing the waters and engaging with subjects before other people do which is very much my experience with this book so you know having worked now in the art world for quite a long time all these ideas like the Anthropocene I heard first in the art world and it then took kind of 10 years for them to come through really into mainstream discourse so a lot of actually this book although the book's not an art book a lot of this book comes from Um, my conversations with artists or artworks that I've seen or projects that I've been party to and I've noticed for example in so among other things I've noticed for example a great interest in geology that's really kind of filtered through in the last 10 years in the art world there has been a big interest in what we call deep time which is taking this extremely long view of world history right you know 4.5 billion year long view of world history and I think what's interesting with that is that people find it Consolations probably possibly the wrong world, but when we're at this moment of climate crisis and we're talking about um, about climate change, taking a much longer view of world history in a way puts it in perspective. I think for people where they f- they feel less 
anxious, perhaps, if we start to think about deep time and we put our own time on the planet into more of a perspective. Um, there, there have obviously also been lots of very interesting works made about extractive industries and um, extractive industries' uh, relationship to empire and colony. So, for example, I'm thinking there of um, Steve McQueen's amazing film work, Gravesend, where he looks at the coltan mining industry um, and links that back to uh, Britain's involvement and Europe's involvement in the Congo. Um, so Gravesend is the port that Marlowe, the narrator of uh, The Heart of Darkness, departs from. So he links this extract extraction of coltan, which is a mineral that's used in things like mobile phones and playstations, and became kind of out of, is a rare mineral and became suddenly extremely sought after when all of these, as technology became more sophisticated. There's, um, I mean, there are rare, there are all kinds of rare minerals that weren't particularly sought after until quite recently, and we're very kind of pinched around our engagement with them because quite often we're having to deal with unsavoury regimes to get access to them. And then there have also been, you know, there's been a lot of interesting kind of thought in the art world and engagement with things like ideas like animism and the idea that materials that we previously thought were inert and lifeless perhaps have a kind of an innate power and that we should consider them in different ways. And so all of these things really came together and informed the book. Um, so the book is divided into six sections, she says, not able to remember how many sections there were in her book. She's looking over there. Uh, so it starts off with stones and power and the way that stones can be expressions of power. That can be architectural. So here in the UK, that is often expressed through Portland stone, uh, which is that very kind of white um, oolitic limestone. People also can express it through gemstones, royal jewels, crown jewels. And if you are, for example, a, you know, a despotic dictator, you might then want to cover yourself in what look like crown jewels so that you look like you're a legitimate power. There, there are also power struggles over mineral wealth. It also looks at the way that um, we turn to stones when we think about the sacred and magic. And I don't make a kind of strong distinction between magic and the sacred because I think they're like two parts on a continuum i think and magic is really the um it's just elements of another another belief system so the way that we you know we might turn to for example stones to for to look into the future um or to commemorate our dead i also look at stones and storytelling which is something in a way storytelling could have been the presiding theme of the book because i think this relationship between stones and storytelling is fascinating because we look at this mineral world and the things that we have no explanation for, like why are there remains of fish on a mountain top? Why is there a dragon buried in my rock? And it provokes us to start to tell stories about about the world. And even, of course, artifacts from previous civilizations, so axe heads and arrows and stone circles. Yeah, the new stories grow up around these as well. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, like the story of humanity. It's such an amazing because it is so it's so relevant to the present moment to work out who you are now in this moment by looking at all those like fossils and imprints within I love it's a just fossil. mind-boggling mm. i know when we, when we were kids i remember the national history my mum worked at the history museum and i remember they discovered uh, the shape of like a, a claw of a particular dinosaur and i can't actually remember what it was i have to ask her not that it's much use now it was a dinosaur nail I think yeah it was like a claw thing yeah and I remember they then reproduced it using a mold you know from the the stone and we you could actually have one of these claws like a 
a toy claw. It was mad. But it's just the idea that that kind of um, connection to history, the way that you can almost like touch it and somehow that touched that time point. It's so sort of, yeah, you can imagine um, the writers of like Mork and Mindy were <laughs> thinking about stones. What was your what was your favourite specimen, Russell? Was there something that you always wanted and never got, or did you have one that was like your star specimen? Um, I like lapis because I like the colour of it. At Labradorium I had, which I got told was very rare, and I took that into junior school and I said it's very rare. There's only two pieces in the world, and the teacher was like, "I doubt you've got one of them, Russell. If that is the case." <laughs> but I got told there used to be a, there used to be a, a, a geode gem store in Basildon town centre in the east gate and my mum would allow me every now and then on Saturday we'd go up there after drama club and I'd be allowed like four pound and I would buy all these polished stones these crystals and I'm as I've got older I've got more fascinated with crystals like listening to Maureen Paley talk about the power of crystals and she had this tangerine quartz and I thought I'll get some of that so I've got a bit of tangerine quartz now and I like the 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 story that you have to like bring your crystal home and you clean it under like running water and then you leave it in the windowsill to absorb the sunlight and then it becomes your crystal I love all that shit this that that makes me happy so I just yeah I just think as a kid it was like pretty things and acquiring a collection of them and and looking after them and you didn't change, did you, Russ? You no, I've always, I've always on that, just on that, uh, wanted on that. lots of pretty things around me. Yeah. Hence, I hang out with oh. you, Rob. I, I know because I am so pretty. <laughs> um, I actually just found a giant rock crystal. It's like um, purple. I don't know what I don't actually know what it is, but it's one of those kind of very crystal-looking purple like amethyst, like an amethyst, Am- or, probably yeah. a, a giant amethyst. So it's huge. It's like probably the size of my head or something. And it was um, Uri Geller gave it to me when I had an operation when I was about nineteen because I grew up with his son Daniel Geller, and he said it was like a healing rock, and I needed to have it by my bed. And I still have it. It's actually in my bathroom. And I looked at it the other day, and I was like, "Where is that from?" And then I suddenly brought back all these memories. It's quite quite funny. Yeah. yeah what's your favourite stone then? Me. Mm. Oh, it's like asking me to choose between my children. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote a whole book about them. them. So it's not so much the stuff. I mean, I have to say the book's really about the stories rather than the stones themselves in a way. Um, So one of my favorite, one of the favorite things that I came across when I was researching the book is just this, it's just the idea of mineral evolution, which is a really recent idea. I mean, I think it's kind of been in the last eight years that they realized that actually there were very few minerals in early earth. So they were, they were a group of earth minerals and that the great proliferation of minerals happened at the same time that there was the first oxygen breathing. So the first um, cyanobacteria started photosynthesizing. So life had this incredibly intense symbiosis with the, the mineral world. So when I talk about this, this kind of separation between mineral the mineral world and living things and trying to to muddy that and confuse that a bit that's where i'm really fascinated by it so suddenly when you get all of this oxygen being introduced into the atmosphere you get this extraordinary proliferation of minerals that happen after that so thinking about the fact that all of these stones are actually evolving i think is that was so mind-blowing i think it's such an extraordinary um you know theory to engage with as well and 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 again we in our very solipsistic way as humans when we talk about life we tend to think about our own life but of course you've got all this bacterial life that you know that was you know this this the great oxygenation event happened two and a half billion years ago but that already was the kind of the great trigger for for the transformation of our of our stony world yeah 
have you ever thought of doing an exhibition in relation to stones in contemporary art? Because there's so many artists that work with with them now. Yeah, I think it could be really interesting. So when I when the book came out in the UK, so it came out in Britain at the end of October last year, and I asked, so I did a series of posts looking at some of my favourite works that I knew of that related to stone. So there were people like Ilana Halperin, who's very geologically minded, and Julien Charrière, um, and then some naughty ones like Ingrid Bertham One's Marble series. Uh, but then I also did a call out and I said, I, I think I think I had a bunch of audible credits. So I said, OK, I'll give um, five away, five audio versions of the audio book to uh, people who send me artworks that correspond to some of the themes in the book. And I got this huge flood of works coming in, and there were some really interesting things. So besides all of the works that we're quite familiar with, there are also there's a whole load of stuff being made. And it's um, I think it could be a really brilliant and fascinating show, actually. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I do too. And it, it makes me think back to the Venice Biennale in 2007 when David Altmedged represented um, Canada and it was a Canadian pavilion and you walked inside. And I swear there were loads of like crystals in that or something because it was such an immersive environment. And I always remember it was almost like they were kind of growing. <laughs> like it, he it was obviously was sculptures, but. There's another artist who makes like rotten fruit out of crystals and I can't remember her name and she was in the Liverpool Biennale. They're like big cherries or strawberries, but the crystals, it's it's beautiful, but it's also rotting fruit. Yes, yes, yes. It's this the artist who's with Josh Lilly. They're they're kind of beads as well as crystals. Yes, yes. I can't remember her name. Kathleen Ryan. Yeah. Yes. Kathleen Ryan. Um, They're great. I mean, yeah. the, the, that is, yeah, because they're kind of like grotesque, but they're also repulsive, but they're beautiful. And yeah, they have yeah. that seduction yeah, yeah. and repulsion at the same time. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, the other stone I always loved was Fool's Gold, just because of the name, and it just made me think historically that so many people would have gone, "This is gold," and then what fools they bought it, and it was just pyrite. <laughs> I love that. I love the name. But it's always God, when I was a kid, I was like a magpie on that. Yeah. I was just like all about the fool. Well, you were the fool. Yeah. Well, that, well, now for Excellent. Rob for his his new companions. Um, there's also there's there's a mineral called mica, but I love the fact that it's called cat silver. So you can have cat silver to go with your fool's gold. Ah, oh, go. for window and doorway. Yeah. Who you're going to meet tomorrow yeah. when you come and do your talk at Quench? That's your cats. Um, actually, Quench is another gallery thinking about parents. Like they they've done earlier openings of their shows. Community like galleries can be community hubs. Do you know what I mean? That that's, it's about making yeah, them totally. inclusive. The inclusivity of the art world is something that we've set this podcast up for. You're writing about, you know, the whole point is, is that they're meant to be areas of, you know, discussion and collaboration and enjoyment that open yeah, to everybody. So it makes yeah. complete sense. And learning from other people's experiences. Like, that's the other thing. Like, we're all supposed to be open-minded people. Mm. And it's like one of the biggest experiences in life is being a parent. Mm you know, bringing kids into the world. Mm. And then also the opposite side of maybe not being one, but like you're still part of a family, a system or of some kind, even if it's a friend family like like Russ and I have. Yeah, the family we make for <laughs> um, ourselves. What, 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 what would you say to anybody listening, Hetty, who really wants to be a writer, especially in this kind of art world? Because um, I think it's such a hard thing to do. I met a writer who, who wrote a review of the Daisy Paris show a while ago. I think maybe at Sim Smith or somewhere um, for Freeze. And they were saying that while it's an amazing thing to do, it's not necessarily something that pays loads of money, hardly pays anything. You might get like 250 quid or something um, to write a piece if that so what what would you say to people that want to persist and really believe in the written word and like what what advice would you share 
I mean, I think it is it is very badly played. And unfortunately, it is this world where we as people involved in music, in art, in the written world, we're up against a whole load of free content online. So we're so used now to not paying for bits of writing or just for looking at images. So we've really come up hard against that. And there are fewer and fewer outlets, for example, for art criticism, as I'm sure you're aware, working in a gallery. I mean, I think that the thing is we also all think of these things as being wonderful creative outlets, but you also need to be extremely professional. So it's that, you know, it's just really basic things like being on time, writing things on length, being easy to work with, knowing what you're talking about. But also, I mean, I think if you're interested in writing about art, the best way really to come into it is from ex- experience of, uh, you know, Amelia of being around artists and because each generation in a way needs their own interpreters, they need their own chroniclers. So if you're there surrounded by, you know, artists, if you're really involved in the, you know, the art world of your generation, you will have an individual viewpoint, you'll have an individual voice that's perhaps missing from the conversation. And I think art magazines are always very um, conscious of the fact that perhaps, you know, their writers are old fuddy-duddies like me, and that they need to have you know, younger voices, they need a, an insight into, you know, emerging scenes as well. Well, we're going to get to our final questions now, Hetty. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? And I also want to open that up to if you could have any rock mineral, geode, amethyst, you know, agate, anything for yourself, uh, what would that be and why? I mean, I'm going to go fairly unadventurous. Well, fairly unadventurous. I mean, uh, I'm, I think I would have to have the adoration of the mystic lamb. What? Where do we see this? What is that's it about? In, that's in St. Bavo's Cathedral in Ghent. It's the earliest European oil painting, uh, possibly the earliest naturalistic rendering of the human figure. It's absolutely amazing. It's in the way that kind of like medieval art quite often looks like everyone's just on drugs the whole time and is very psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's the one that they they've done a partial restoration of. So it's a it's an altarpiece that's in Ghent uh, by Van Eyck, and it's um pretty extraordinary. I saw it a couple of weeks ago when I was on tour, and that was pretty good. Failing that, I mean, I'd be happy to pocket um, a Cranach. You know, there are quite a few knocking around the museums in Northern Europe. I'm sure one or two wouldn't go. They wouldn't notice one of them disappearing. And who was Cranach? Um, he's a Northern Renaissance painter who did a lot of religious and symbolic paintings of, you know, top figures like Eve, Virgin Mary, Christ. Yeah, I think, you know, some some very small, exquisite Northern Renaissance work. I'd, I'd quite religious think. work you'd want then? I just I think there's a quality to those those early paintings is just so extraordinary and I, as I say it's a slight otherworldliness to them so it's before you're getting these very idealized figures perhaps there's um there's something a little bit curious and mystical to them uh in terms of a stone I mean it depends whether I was going to wear it if I was going to wear it I probably would not turn down an emerald for example <laughs> um, I can't really see any emeralds in my future I mean, I, like you, I really, obviously, Lapis is very extraordinary and um, has, of course, a very important art world history as well. It's the stone that you make ultramarine from and has that amazing cultural history of having been prized for thousands and thousands of years. So that's, if I'm going for a, a slightly less, a slightly more accessible option. The other thing I'm also really fascinated by in the book are Gongxi, which are Chinese spirit stones. 
So I, I would also be quite happy to have a bit of Lingbishi lime, Lingbishi, which is um, limestone from Anhui province in China, in an extraordinary formation that I could ponder on my desk. On, on your recent tour, I know you've been posting pictures of paintings and artworks relating to motherhood. Is there one in particular that, that stood out for you? It was more, I mean, I think I was quite fascinated by, well, I mean, obviously seeing Paula Modson Becker works is always a bit of a treat. So there was a very good uh, Paula Madsen Becker mother and child that's at the Neue uh, National Gallery in Berlin. Yeah, I mean, I think it was quite often, particularly in Scandinavia, I was really interested by all of the stuff that I didn't know. And it makes you, it's always a good reminder of how insular we can be in the British art scene and how much we look to um, America and perhaps Western Europe. And we're perhaps quite ignorant of, you know, things that are happening further east or further north. Um, so I was really interested to to kind of encounter some artists whose work I didn't know at all well. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll go with Paula Madsen Becker because it's always, yeah, that's a good one. I saw you posted that, yeah, so people can see that on your um, on your Instagram. Mm. Uh, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Big questions, Hattie. I know, this is a, you're really hitting me with some, like, this is pretty tough. I feel yeah, like I'm on hard, 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 hard on the BBC. Critical questioning going on here, Hattie. <laughs> <laughs> I think possibly a kind of burnt orange. I quite like a burnt Ooh. orange. I no think, way. I thought he was going to yeah. say blue because of lapis and the emerald, but burnt yeah. orange. Okay. <laughs> no. I've got I've got two new vintage chairs which I've just had reupholstered, and guess what colour they are? Burnt, burnt orange. orange. I will uh, show you tomorrow. You're showing us the cover mm. of Lapidarium, and it's burnt orange in burnt one orange. section. One, one might even say amber. Amber. Yeah. Oh, amber's, amber's gorgeous, also yeah. a good one because you can get mm. amber, and you could get mosquitoes in amber, like they did in Jurassic Park, and they got the dino DNA. I like amber. Mm. They're, they're like, that was the holy grail as a kid was finding a bit of amber with like a bug in it. What's the best advice yeah. you've ever received, Hetty, when it comes to your writing or your art? Best advice I've ever received? I'm not sure anybody's given me advice, actually. I mean, I think kind of generally leaving something and then coming back to it's pretty good if you still like it. Leaving it for how long? Um, well, I think this, there was a teacher at, at, at university that suggested seven years which i think is possibly a little excessive <laughs> seven uh, <laughs> years <laughs> it's like i'm just gonna do a review I might leave it seven yes years. um i think that's very much this idea that if you're wanting to create some kind of work of timeless genius seven years would be a good testing point so if it still felt really important at that point then you were onto something well it's interesting because you spent five years mapping the inequality in the visual arts that was something that you were dedicated to so in some ways you have kind of followed that advice you spent many years researching that subject yeah. yeah and I definitely when I'm thinking about books I'm going to write in the coming years there'll always be quite a long period of like soft research of accumulating books and artworks putting artworks in my back pocket not literally but you know before I kind of work out what the next thing I want to do is so yes I've got the next the two books after that kind of uh, lined up so um, amazing cultural force well this has been incredible Hetty thank you so much for coming on you're such a wonderful person and such a bright intelligent inspiring I just adore you I think you're brilliant and you're really you're just cool I've always really enjoyed getting to know you over the last few years I feel like it's since 2019 really but like I just I'm, I'm really inspired by everything you're doing and I also just think Everybody listening to this, if you haven't bought Hetty's books, please order them like right now. And um, the latest one, Lapidarium, the front cover is so gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, who designed that for you? I love that. Was that like in-house at the publishing house? It, it's the American cover. And rather naughtily, the British edition doesn't actually credit the design. I do have her name somewhere and I'll put it on. I tell you, what, I'll put it 
in the notes to the podcast when it goes out. Fantastic. I'll make sure she's credited. Yeah. Good times. Well, thank you, Hetty Judah. And you're on Instagram? Yes, at Hetty Judah. Perfect. Very easy. We'll link to you there and we'll be posting images of things we've been talking about today on our Instagram at TalkArt. Thank you for listening. We'll be back very soon. Thank you, Hetty. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.